All right. Thank you all for joining us. If it is your uh, first time joining us or your first time in a long time, last Sunday, the first Sunday of the new year, we kicked off the book of 1 Timothy after spending a year, a very seemingly quick year, actually, in Genesis. Uh, and so I hope that was really encouraging for you. And we will be working our way through this letter from Paul to Timothy. And so I hope, one of my hopes is, uh, as Timothy was, as we're going to see in a second, left behind in a church, a very prominent church, whose beginnings you can read about in Acts 19, uh, that was now less than a generation, and less than a generation later, uh, totally in danger of being gripped and taken away by false teaching. My hope is as we kind of see what God has to say for them, to get them on a good and healthy trajectory, that the same will be true for us. Uh, and so I, I'm really looking forward to our series through 1 Timothy. Uh, we're in chapter 1. We're going to go through it at a, at a pretty good pace, about three sermons per one chapter a week. So you can do the math, break it down. We'll be in it for a while. Uh, just And if you missed last week as a member and you want to know the trajectory we're going to be on after Timothy, we're going to hit the Gospel of John. Uh, we're going to go and jump right into John's Gospel and see what that has for us. And then after the Gospel of John, we're going to pick back up in the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus, right? So they just made a movie about this, Christian Bale's Moses. It looks like Gladiator meets Batman meets the Bible. All right, it's very interesting. But we're going to jump back into Exodus, and hopefully that time will be edifying. Why do we do this? Now, why do we do this in this manner uh, and do some of the things we do? We memorize Scripture. We read the Scripture. Uh, one of the things, as I've said, as a pastor, that my desire for our church is that in some ways we would just get back to the basics. Paul says in Acts 20 that he declared the whole counsel of God. And so we work through the Bible, uh, we read the Bible, and it is the primary substance for the things, Lord willing anyways, that I say. And so I also ask of you that you would have your Bibles and that you would have them on or open, however that looks for you, all right? on or open, because what I ask of you to do is to weigh what I say against the text of Scripture. Because some of you, if it's your first time, you have no clue who I am. Why should you accept anything I say? You should be weighing everything, discerning everything against the Word, the perfect, inspired, sufficient Word of God. And, and why do I press this home? Because this is actually one of the very first points that Ephesus went wrong at is that they were not discerning who their teachers were. Uh, so before I launch into that even more, I want to say real fast a, a word about a letter. So we just worked through Genesis. The book of Genesis, I'm having a little issue here. The book of Genesis is actually a little, it's a lot different from 1 Timothy. And so how we read Genesis is quite different than how you should approach a letter to the New Testament. Now, why are we doing this? Because I'm trying to help you read your Bibles, all right? I'm trying to help you understand how you approach your daily devotions. The book of Genesis and others like it uh, are what you would call a historical narrative. So it's teaching by way of storytelling, if you will. It's telling you a story with a point about God or about his people or about patience. And so all of the Old Testament, as we saw in Genesis, points 
forward to who? To Jesus, right? It foreshadows Christ and his coming and his work and his plan and his mission and his redemption, all of it paving the way. And so in Genesis, we see types and shadows and uh, things of this nature. Now, here we are after the cross, after Christ, after the resurrection, and we have a letter, a letter now from Paul to Timothy and to the church at Ephesus is a little bit different letter is going to give instructions more clearly, more forthrightly, or it's going to give commands or make more clear statements. It's, in essence, Paul's going to draw from the Old Testament, or whatever you're reading, in this case, Paul, he's going to draw from the Old Testament teachings and the narrative, that story. He's going to draw from them, kind of synthesize them, and make statements as a result of them. For instance, if you would turn your eyes to verse 8. Verses 8, he says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Uh, What is he saying? What law is he discussing? Most would agree that this is the law of Moses given on Sinai. This is a story, right, which we will be visiting in the book of Exodus. So if you're like, I'm lost already, it's okay, all right? Just hang with us. The law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. Now he's going to give several pairs, all right? So I'm going to start here with lawless and disobedient. That's one pair. Ungodly and sinners, two pair for the unholy and profane, three pairs. And then I think he says, what? For those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers. And he goes on, most would say at, when we stop at for the unholy and profane, those first three pairs refer to the first table of the Ten Commandments. The first table of Ten Commandments. The second, the re- or re- rather the rest of the pairs, uh, if you notice, they, they parallel, right? The fifth commandment on down. For those who strike their fathers and, the, and the mothers, what's the fifth commandment? You shall honor your father and mother. For murderers, what's the sixth? Do not kill. For the sexually immoral, do not commit adultery, and so on and so forth. And Paul is now applying or drawing out some of the Ten Commandments. Now, what is the purpose of that? I'll hopefully explain in a moment, but what I want to draw your attention to is how a letter is drawing on the material of the Old Testament and making more clear instructions on the basis of that material. You you tracking with me? Does that make sense? Mind blown? All right. I don't know. If it is, we'll, we'll deal with it and we'll grow more. We're just in the beginning. And so this is where we are with a letter. It's more clear. It's more pointing back to Christ and showing the way forward. With that in mind, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word, how it does instruct us. It it doesn't just instruct us, but it actually gives us life by pointing us to the perfect person and work of your Son, Jesus, Lord. And I pray, uh, Lord, that as we sang, that you would stir the desires of our hearts, that forevermore, forevermore, we would praise the name of Jesus, and that when you come back, that we would fix our eyes our physical eyes on Christ and be transformed into his image perfectly. And now I ask that by faith, Lord, what we don't see by sight, that what we'd see by faith now, that we would fix our gaze on the glories 
of the gospel of the blessed God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Would you get all the glory this morning in Jesus' name? Amen. All right, I have two points. Uh, two points. One, the aim of our charge is love. From verse 5, the aim of our charge is love. And number two, the aim of the law is the gospel. The aim of the law is the gospel. Uh, I wish I could just take a whole sermon, and I guess I could because I'm the pastor, right? I get to do what I want, but I'm not going to do that this time. Uh, I wish I could take this whole sermon and just focus on the last of verse 11 in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. That is a powerful phrase. There's just so much packed in there. We're not going to spend a ton of time, but the aim of our charge is love, and the aim of the law is the gospel. In the book of Acts chapter 20, you see Paul's farewell speech, if you will, to this church in Ephesus. This church that he helped plant, that he spent three years at teaching and preaching and laboring for these people. You see his farewell speech, and there's a lot of crying and weeping. And one of the things he says to the pastors of that church in Ephesus is he says, Pay attention to yourselves and to the flock of God. For after my departure, fierce wolves will arise from among your own selves, teaching twisted things, drawing away the disciples after them. He says that they will not spare the flock of God. You can read this in Acts chapter 20. It's a very moving uh, speech. But in most commentators would say within 5 to 15 years after the book of Ephesians and, and what Paul did in Acts chapter 20, here in 1 Timothy, his statement is coming true. That fierce wolves have arisen within and are threatening the church. And so he leaves uh, this one whom he describes as his son in the faith, like a father labors with the son. He leaves Timothy behind to help correct. And one of the things he says, and in some ways this is going to be a negative section of scripture and that he's starting off with a don't do this tell them not to do this and so because it's in some ways a negative directive this is a negative section because he is by nature combating false teaching so he says charge certain persons verse 6 we see that certain persons by swerving and then in the verse uh, let's see verse 18 and 19 he names some of these persons among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander who have I have handed over to Satan they have made a shipwreck of their faith these certain persons apparently were teaching a different doctrine than what Paul had taught they were not only teaching something different, they had devoted themselves wholly to myths and endless genealogies, he says. Now, we don't know exactly the nature of this false teaching. It is likely some sort of combination of Jewish mythology and uh, maybe an early form of Gnosticism. Some of you guys are like, I'm lost again, Pastor. Stick with me, all right? Uh, one of the things he said, though, is don't pay attention to them. Don't devote yourselves to them. Now, this is a warning for us today. Remember, this is within one generation. One generation of Paul's teaching that this church had fallen into this. This is a warning. Don't devote or pay attention 
to any kind of teaching that may sound good. Now, what's this idea of pay attention? Anybody in here like to watch TV series like, uh, I don't know, maybe like uh, 24 or Lost or... No? We don't have... Okay, there's a few. They're all, oh, okay, look, there are all the hands starting to come up, all right? So you guys know, one of the things you do with TV series is uh, if you have like DVR or something, you set it to save, right? And, and you want to watch the new episode or, or maybe you're going to change your whole schedule for that day. Man, Thursday's at 7, the new episode of Blank is coming on. I'm going to be there. And we have part, right? We're paying special attention. It's not just normal like, oh, I hope I catch the news tonight. If I don't, it's not a big deal. We're paying special attention to that object. And this is kind of what they were doing. They were trying not to miss or trying to pay special attention to this new teaching. It was different than what they had heard. It was intriguing. It was tantalizing. And Paul says the bottom line of all of this empty teaching is that it gives way to speculation and that at the end of the day, empty talk. And if they continued to give themselves to it, they would ultimately shipwreck their faith. Now, do these speculations happen today? Do people devote themselves to false teaching today? What do you think? Yes? Yes, I would agree, too. Uh, I would say people do, indeed, do this uh, in all sorts of ways. A few ways. Um, well, how many times, let's think, number 666, this sounds good, right? How many speculations have you heard about the number 666? Has it not been in church history interpreted to refer from everybody to Nero, Stalin, Hitler, Obama maybe, I don't know, right? Every Bin Laden, people have so much speculated that 666 is this, even such that they would say on a can of monster energy drink, the sign of monster is actually the Hebrew character for 666, therefore you should not drink monster because it's the mark of the beast. You guys heard this? Yeah, we've heard this. Speculations. Uh, let's see, other eschatological schemes. I don't know how many people told me when Obama was elected that he was the Antichrist and that Jesus was coming back before the end of his term. Here we are, 2016. Almost there. I guess you're like, hey, it could still happen. To be fair, you're right. It could. It could, and I actually pray that it would. Amen? Lord, come quickly is what we pray. However, these schemes, there's no end. There's no end to them. Oh, we need to pay attention to Russia because what they're doing, and they're the Russian bear, and they're going to come down from the north and take over Israel any day now. And so we're going to read the Jerusalem. And it just keeps going and going and going and going. And the government, maybe the government. Oh, yes, the government conspiracies. They're going to take all your guns, you know. They are. You better go buy them. Go buy them because they're going to take them and hide them because they're coming. We laugh, but we know it's true, right? I'm poking fun. I like firearms, by the way. Um, they are fun. I'm not making any statements about that. All I'm saying 
is that this speculation, whatever it is in this church, and we are guilty and capable of the same thing, distracted them from the message and mission of the gospel. It was a distraction. It's not that all of it, there was probably truth mingled with error. They likely used God's word, the Old Testament genealogies, as the basis of their fables and myths. The point is that it was a distraction and ultimately empty talk. It didn't lead to a genuine love for Christ. And it caused many, many to swerve, to wander from the gospel. How does wandering happen, right? Wandering happens when you generally fix your eyes off of the target and you start looking elsewhere. And before long, you're just, huh. You're not that far away yet, but after a while, time goes on and you're very, you've wandered very far from where you began. It was a distraction. These things serve to take our eyes off of the glorious gospel of the blessed God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so I urge you, brothers and sisters, gently, be careful. Be careful the type of teaching that you allow to captivate your heart and your mind. And I'll just use it because we've already used it, but I, I see more believers on Facebook and in churches that seem to care more about the second amendment than the second commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. To care more about our constitutional rights in America than we care about our rights as citizens of the kingdom of God. So we can never take the truths of the gospel for granted. We cannot assume them because the moment we begin to assume them is the moment we begin to lose them. And so he says, don't pay attention to these types of things. Don't, don't give yourselves to things that lend to speculation. Rather, the aim, now here it is, here's the positive statement of what we're doing here. The aim of our charge is love. That issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Brothers and sisters, the aim of everything we do at Kahalui Baptist Church, the aim of everything you do in your ministry ought to be love. Love. The double command, right? What is the first and greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Uh, that starts first. So the aim of all your teaching, of all your conversations, of whenever you're sticking around after church and you're talking about the sermon, the aim, the aim, the goal, the purpose, the end has to be love. Whenever you're counseling, you all counsel, you know that, right? Every single one of you is a counselor. You're like, no, I don't counsel. Yes, you do. Have you ever had a phone call from a friend and they're just distraught and now you're talking, trying to give them advice? You're a counselor. You are a counselor. Have you ever spoken about God just casually in conversation with somebody? You're a theologian now because you're making true statements or statements about God. And my encouragement Husbands, wives, roommates, brothers, sisters. 
Employers, the aim of your charge, of your ministry, has to be love. Love for God. And the second commandment, love for your neighbors. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart. This calls to mind the Sermon on the Mount, right? Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. as opposed to an impure, hardened heart, a heart of stone. A good conscience, a conscience that's clean and clear before God. Not a result of what you've done, but as a result of right standing on the basis of the work of Christ by faith. And a sincere faith, or that is a faith without hypocrisy. That's the aim of our charge. That's the aim of my ministry is that you, Kahalui Baptist Church, and visitors, brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus, would grow day by day in a sincere, pure love for Lord Jesus Christ. By God's grace, I talked last week about how God has grown us. We have increased in number, praise God. But please know that is not my goal. My primary goal is the accomplishment of the Great Commission to make disciples of the nations and disciples being those who are being conformed to the image of Christ more and more, the aim of my charge is that you would grow in love for your Savior. That's expressed in action. The church father, Augustine, said this about the Scripture. So anyone who thinks that he has understood the divine Scriptures or any part of them but cannot by his understanding build up this double love of God and neighbor has not yet succeeded in understanding them. You catch that? So it is possible. These guys apparently probably knew their scriptures better than many of us in here. It is possible to know the scriptures, to understand them, to know God's law, and yet not be a very loving person at all. And if your study of scriptures is not yielding this love for God and neighbor, then you are not understanding them properly. You have work to do. And we all have work to do, amen? So I ask, what is your aim, beloved? When you do your devotions in the morning or at night, what is your aim? Is it to check off that I read my Bible and walk away and forget everything we just did? Or is it to love God and love others? When you speak with others, what is your aim? When you have a conflict or a disagreement, is your desire to be found right? To be found smarter, perhaps more intelligent? Is your aim to love? To love God and love others and thereby glorify the gospel? Maybe you find yourself a critical person, a judgmental person, a little bit better than everybody else. Maybe you're sensitive to correction such that when somebody corrects you or challenges you, become exceedingly defensive and angry. Maybe you're irritable 
impatient, quick to anger. Is that you? If so, I would ask or challenge you graciously, what is the aim of what you are doing? Maybe, maybe, if it was possible for the church in Ephesus, with an apostle and an apostle's padawan as pastor, all right, so to speak, if that was possible, then it's possible for us. Maybe you've gotten off track. It's possible. The aim of all things that we're doing has got to be love of God and others. Number two, the aim of the law is the gospel. The aim of the law is the gospel. Now, when Paul mentions how they make claims about the law and they end up uh, making these confident assertions, not knowing what they are actually talking about, he then goes and he digresses and goes on this little excerpt about the law. Now, let me ask you, Christian, on the side of the new covenant, Jesus has come, he's died. Are we under the Mosaic law? What do you think? Some of you, I'm not going to ask you to say yes or no, but say yes. Everybody say yes. Don't say yes out loud, but just think in your minds. I'm saying yes. Okay. No, say no. Uh, we're under, we're not under the Mosaic law. No. Okay. I don't know. Who are the I don't knows? Okay. There's a lot, probably more of I don't knows. All right. And this has come up in the history of the church since the beginning. What is the role of the law for Christians, for believers, for followers of Jesus? Is the law bad? Well, God gave it, so it can't be bad. This is how Paul argues in Romans chapter 3. God gave the law. It can't be bad. So what is its purpose? What is its purpose? Some were accusing Paul of being against the law, and so he's answering, the law is good if, that's an if, if one uses it lawfully. So it's possible to have something good, and we have to make this distinguish, uh, distinguishing feature. It's possible to have something be good and use that good thing for an ungood or damaging reason. Is this true? Yes. Let me use an example, prescription pain medication. The most abused drug in America, prescription pain medication at all legal. I mean, millions and millions of people suffer under this struggle of abusing these meds. I just had like this double ear infection. My, my head was pounding, and praise God, my doctor gave me prescription pain medication, all right? So uh, Christmas Day, I was high, all right? I was very high. I texted my friend something, uh, and I didn't even remember I texted him. And, and so, right, this is, this is what was happening. But God, by God's good graciousness, he gave this to relieve pain. Is pain medication bad? No, it's just there. It's, it's there. But can it be used for nefarious reasons? Yes. So it is with the law. Is the law bad? No. If you use it for the purpose it was intended for. And so he says the law is not for the just, but for the lawless. So that's the first clue as to how you are using it. It is not for the righteous people, but for the unrighteous 
people. Now imagine I was a police officer, right, for four years, and I get behind you in my police cruiser, and you see me in the mirror, and what do you start to do? Your heart starts to beat a little bit faster, or you start wondering, is my safety expired? Is my, am I doing something wrong? Did I, okay, here's a stop sign. I'm going to stop for like five seconds before I move any, right? And you're just hoping you don't see those little lights come on. Now, imagine the lights come on. Now you start sweating, your blood pressure increases. You're like, man, what did I do? I walk up. I don't know how I would walk up, you know. License, registration, right? I don't know, right? But, but I walk up and I come to the driver's side window and, and you're freaking out and some of you would probably be crying and nothing even happened yet. That's, that's a few of you, right? And I say, hey, I just want to let you know you're doing a great job. You are the best driver I have ever seen. I just wanted to thank you, right? No, that's not what happens, right? That's not how it goes. The law is not made for the righteous. You don't have to tell people who are doing good to stop doing bad. You don't have to tell them to obey. Hey, don't murder anybody, all right? Cool, because I'm not. I wasn't, I wasn't going to do anything, right? Son, I want you to listen to your mom. I was listening to my mom, right? The law is not made for the righteous, but for the unrighteous. To restrain sin and to reveal sin. To show that we need a savior. Now, that would be the lawful use for the unrighteous. Now, if you start to apply the law to righteous people, that's an unlawful use of the law. And now the law is bad because one of the things the law cannot do, I'm going to try and explain this again in a second for you. One of the things the law cannot do is make you righteous. It cannot make you righteous, nor can it keep you righteous. That would be an unlawful use of the law. Paul says in Romans chapter 8 verse 3 that, the, that God did by sending his son in the flesh for sins that God did what the law couldn't do, weakened as it was by the flesh. So the law's not bad. It's that we are sinners and it stirs our sin and exposes it. It cannot change us. And so our old flesh, this is a temptation because our old nature, our old flesh, loves religious legalism. We love it. We crave it. Why do we like law and lists? Why? Because it enables a person to appear holy without having to change their heart. That's why we like lists. Just tell me what to do. Tell me the five steps, Pastor Randy. I just want five steps to a better marriage, all right? I just want 10 steps to better children. You probably need 20, but you just want 10 steps to better children. Just give me a list of what to do. We like that because it allows us to appear Christ-like without having to change our hearts. And this is an unlawful use of the law. The purpose of the law is to point us to Christ. The aim of the law is the gospel. You know, the law of Moses and the gospel are not at odds. Paul says it's in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. A lawful use of the law is meant the whole time to show us our need for Christ. 
to show us our need of a Savior, to show us that we need somebody, something to change me because I can never seem to keep all these lists that I make. And guess what? When you have lists that you live by, you make lists for other people to live by. Right? Such that when people violate your list, they've broken your law and incur your wrath. The result, we just destroy all of our relationships, right? We just destroy all of them. Is this true too? Yes. Yes, it's true. Are, do you have relationships that are broken in your life? Yeah. Have people offended you? Yeah. Do we want, a lot of times when people come to counseling to me, one of the things they almost inevitably want, which makes sense, is just make it better. Just tell them to stop doing that and tell them to start doing that. If only it were that simple. If only it were that simple. The law can never change our heart. Martin Luther said it like this, the reformer. The law is a mighty hammer. Let's picture that, a mighty hammer. The law is a mighty hammer to crush the self-righteousness of human beings. For it shows them their sin, so that by the recognition of sin, they may be humbled, frightened and worn down, and so may long for grace and for the blessed offspring, Jesus. And so it is in this sense that the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. The law, all the while, Galatians chapter 3, pointing the way to Jesus, the guardian, our guardian, to shut us up until Christ came, and then the law was fulfilled. The law is not opposed to the gospel. The law, the aim of the law, is the gospel. So this is good news, brothers and sisters. When you read this list, starting in verse 9, the lawless and disobedient the lawless, those who don't know the law, who don't care about the law, who rebel against the law. But the ungodly and sinners. Anybody in here feel ungodly? All right. Anybody feel like a sinner in here? I thought so. For the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, Anybody ever struck their father and mother? You don't have to raise your hand. This happens, believe it or not, more often than you like to think. And don't get self-righteous, because remember the commandment, honor your father and mother. Anybody ever dishonored their father and mother? For murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, Whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. This list is really, really... Uh, if we could go into verse 12, and I encourage you to read that for your devotions. That's actually where Paul gets into his testimony and the good news that this, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Every single one of us is in this list at the end. And something happens, this war rages in churches and throughout the week that rages amongst believers. And it seems as if uh, our flesh and Satan, the accuser, just batter you every time you sin. What's wrong with you? 
Are you even a believer? How could you do this? You don't deserve to be amongst God's people. I'm the only one in church that needs help. Does this not happen? What kind of wife am I? What kind of husband am I? What kind of father am I? How could I do this? And in guilt and condemnation, then shame comes and it drives us away from the very hope of the gospel. There seems to be an awful lot of effort being made to convince people that you're too bad for the saving reaches of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I stand here and tell you with full confidence and full assurance that Christ came into the world to save and deliver sinners, to do what the law couldn't do and give you a new heart. A heart that will genuinely flow out with love that issues forth, that comes out of love. And that all of this, beloved, is in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. The gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Is that not a glorious truth that we sing about? Is that not a glorious truth that Christ came to save sinners? Beloved, he didn't just say the gospel of Christ, although that is what it is. It is the gospel of glory. The gospel you believe and hold and trust and cherish and guard is a glorious message. It is a message so glorious that it will ring through the ages of eternity with praise and worship. It isn't just the gospel of glory. It is the gospel of glory of the blessed God. What does that mean, blessed God? Like I said, we're not going to spend a lot of time just real, but what does that mean, blessed God? Our God is infinitely happy. That's what that means. It means our God is infinitely happy and delighted in the perfections of his own being. And when we delight in him, that flows, overflows rather, from us love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Against such things, Paul says, there is no law. Our God is an infinitely happy God. And so at the end of our lives, Jesus gives a parable and Jesus to a faithful servant says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. You are not going to be in eternity with a grumpy God, all right? You're not going to be in eternity with somebody who's just irritable all the time, and he's just in a bad mood. Oh, is God in a bad mood today? I don't know. I'm kind of scared. I'll see him on another day. No, God is infinitely, eternally, and ultimately a happy God, and he invites you into that happiness, beloved. That cannot be challenged cannot be taken away, and it will never end. And we've been entrusted with that. We've been entrusted. The work of the gospel, only Christ could do. The proclamation of the gospel, the manifestation of the gospel is entrusted, beloved, to you. To you. Go and invite others 
into this infinitely happy God this morning for the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I ask that you would do what I cannot, that you would bring about your purposes, that we would love you with all of our hearts, soul, and mind, and that we would love our neighbors as ourselves. that the aim of our charge would come to fruition. Work love in these people this morning. For the glory of Christ, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.